So we're gonna jump back into our series on the book of Mark. We have been going through this book for the last nine weeks. Um, we did take off last week as we just walked through uh, the last week of Jesus' life into his resurrection, celebrating Easter together as a community. It was a beautiful time, and we appreciate you guys that were able to come out for that. But we're going to get back into the book of Mark today and bring this section to a close. This is Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. It says, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to them, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In Mark chapter three, it says, another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The word of God for the people of God. So we've been looking over the past few weeks at stories of conflict. In the first chapter of Mark, um, the author is setting up this beautiful story and it's beginning to reveal to his audience who Jesus actually is from the time of his baptism to the announcement of his ministry saying the kingdom of God is here, it's now, it's present, it's with me. To Jesus' ministry where he um, casts out demons and heals people, we're beginning to see glimpses of who Jesus is and the power that he has in his life and in his ministry. So much so that it wasn't odd for folks to see and watch and, 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 and look at what was going on and say, who is this guy? The power that he has, the authority that he has is not like anything that we've ever seen before. And we've met Jesus and we've seen how his life and his ministry is, is doing something that's completely different. Yet in chapter two, as some of these stories were taking place, we've met um, groups of people who were calling Jesus to task, asking questions. Why does this fellow talk like that? Why does this fellow see someone who is paralyzed and then forgive sins? No one can forgive sins but God himself. Why would this person say that? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus walking through that, that toll booth and saying to Levi, come follow me. Followed by a dinner 
where Jesus is reclining at the table with the most unlikely cast of characters whose society, especially religious society, has pushed off into the margins and the outskirts saying, you don't belong. But Jesus breaks bread and shares drinks with them. In this middle transitional story, it says, why is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And this is where Jesus kind of initiates this battle cry of new wine into new wineskins. The things of the old are, are gone. I'm doing something new. If you try to contain me in the old structures of your religion, if you try to contain me in the past, it will only be disastrous for you, for me, for us. Jesus is inviting people into something that's different, world shifting, if you will. In the two stories that we're looking at tonight, they both center around the Sabbath, and we see the Pharisees yet again asking questions. Why are Jesus' disciples in the first story doing what is unlawful by walking through a field and taking some of the grain or corn off of the stalk and eating it on the Sabbath? In the second story, why is Jesus healing? Why is it that this guy who's a religious leader who's supposed to be um, acting for God, why is it that he's breaking Sabbath law that we hold so dear? And again, we can't read these two stories without that, that third conflict narrative where Jesus says, it's new wine into new wineskins. You can't hold me in the past and you can't take what I'm doing and try to make sense of it in your old religious structures. It's something different, it's something fresh, it's something exciting, it's something new, yet you guys aren't allowing yourself to see that. So in the two stories we're looking at tonight, um, we're gonna talk just very briefly about Sabbath. We did a series not too long ago on Sabbath rest, and we looked at a few verses that kind of um, point us in this direction. You don't have to look any farther than the Ten Commandments to see that this is something that God deemed to be very important for people to engage in these regular rhythms of work and rest. In uh, one text, this, this rhythm of our life is based on God's template in creation where he works for six days and then he rests on the seventh. In another text, this is based on um, Israel's redemption and um, salvation, in a sense, from Egyptian oppression. We see in both cases, the source of rest is to be God himself, and the impetus behind it is to demonstrate yourselves to the world to be different, <coughs> to be a people that have been called, to be a people that have been redeemed and restored, to be a people that are holy and set apart, and to be a light unto the nations because the way that Israel did life was radically different. Now, we could stop here for a second and pause and think about our lives for a second, and I don't wanna take all of my junk and throw it onto you, but I think that some of my junk might relate to you as you sit here, students especially, this idea of rest isn't something that we're comfortable with because what rest demands is trust. Trust that if we step away from our books for an hour or two or five or 12 or 24, 
we'll be okay. If we step away from the cares and the concerns of this world, not in a sense of turning our backs to it, but where we are able to receive blessing and encouragement and strength from the Spirit in a very intentional way, it demands that we're able to trust in those moments that when we get back to our work, everything will still be where we left it. I struggle with this and you guys know that because as I stand here before you, I wear a lot of different hats. I am one chapter away from finishing this stupid PhD. Well, save your applause until it's over. Because I'm scared, okay? On the, on the clock, if I don't submit by February, then bad things will happen to me. If I don't submit by summer, I think bad things will be inflicted upon me by my wife. So <laughs> I try to get there. But like, we have this dissertation stuff. I'm also teaching students. And when I walk into the classroom and I'm a bit unprepared, or I'm a bit like scatterbrained, or sometimes I just walk into the room and like, Whatever bit of composure I had, it goes out the window because they all drive me crazy. And then I am a, a full-time, I would like to think a full-time pastor here trying to get to know all of you. And as I look out here and think to myself, oh my gosh, there's so many people that I don't even know who they are. It's just like the weight of that is crushing. And I haven't even talked about the fact that I'm a husband and a dad. And like rest for Kate and I is usually you open the door after being out for who knows how long, you sit on the couch, and within seconds, you're unconscious. And the next thing you know, it's three in the morning and your back's hurting, you're like, oh my gosh, how old am I? I'm telling you, students, you think that you're immune to this, but once you turn 30, <laughs> yep. I'm, I'm, on my, I'm journeying my way there, uh, and I'm sure that that's got its issues of its own, but for me, something about it, as soon as I turned 30, it was like, when it was 8.30, I was like, I think it's time for bed. <clears throat> Even that, did you hear that? Like, I just went like this, and like, that, my sternum just popped. I don't, <laughs> just so like tensed up. This idea of, of rest and, and Sabbath for me is, is tough, and Kate and I have been fighting for the last nine months or so to make Saturday our day of rest. Um, and it's been difficult because at times you have to take the dissertation out of your brain and put it somewhere else and you have to take all of the junk that your students import into your head and put it over here and you have to take all of the, the many issues of the church that are beautiful and we just feel called to them and we love them and you have to put them aside and focus on something a little bit closer to home. It's difficult. The worst time for me is when I'm in the car with Kate and we're driving somewhere because as I'm driving, everything is like flooding in my mind. And if I'm not careful, I'll say to Kate, Kate, can you text this person for me? And I can just see like that look come over her face like, oh no, be present, don't do this. And I just start going into that work mode because I'm not trusting that things will be okay. And in a sense, I'm not trusting God to take care of God's own people because I want to do it myself. I think there's a danger in that, and, and for the ancient Jewish audience, um, they started to try to put safeguards around Sabbath. So we have these commands that say, um, don't work on the Sabbath, which begs the question, well, what is work? 
I like cutting my grass. Is that work? Can I go cut my grass? I like running 10 miles at a clip with my two little power water bottles as I run around in my short shorts and my shoes that have five fingers for my toes. <laughs> I've got pictures. I won't show them to you though. They're just the shorts are too short. <laughs> like what constitutes work and how then do we understand what, what it looks like? And, then, and for a lot of us, especially back in the 50s and the 60s and in this, in this country, it became um, a legalistic task of doing absolutely nothing and trying to be holy. So nothing was open, which was pretty cool because that means nobody had to work, but nothing was open and things pretty much shut down um, and you just were forced to sit there and, and play board games. Some of the fondest memories, though, of my childhood are Sundays. Dad would be sitting in his recliner and I would be running around like a crazy person and we had this little foam football and he would throw it to me over the couch and I would try to dive and catch it. And when that got really bad, he would send me outside to play by myself. And one day it was raining and he sent me outside and I slipped and I broke my arm. <laughs> I'm not bitter. Side note, it's funny the things that you remember. I was wearing a white Garfield sweatshirt and it was a clean break, so I started bleeding through my white Garfield sweatshirt, and my mom said, I think it's broken. And I said, no, I'm good, I'm good, nope, I'm good. Because <laughs> I knew what was gonna happen to me. What was going to happen to me, this was like back in the days of ancient torture in the hospital. They put your fingers, I don't know if this still happens, but they put your fingers in like this Chinese finger trap where you're just like hanging there and like, ah! Okay, back on task, Sabbath. Um, you start asking what is work and what constitutes work and for a lot of us, I don't think that we've really understood that because the way that our world works today, it's not 24-6, it's 24-7. If you want a bacon double cheeseburger at 4.30 in the morning, well, you're entitled to that. Go get it. Somebody should be serving you that. And we kind of live that way where nothing stops for us and especially for students and some employees and certain lines of work and families and just it's very difficult for us to break and to understand that God is in control and God is in charge. The ancient Jews were stressed out by this too and they fell into this legalistic trap and what they did was they started to fence the Torah. So we have this one command to not work on the Sabbath and then they started on top of that to create these rules on top of rules on top of rules on top of rules to protect the one God-ordained command so that by the end of it there was like, I believe 37 or 39, I forget the number, of different categories of things that they deemed to constitute what work is so that you didn't have any questions, just like you don't do any of these things. So what you find is you have Jesus' disciples walking through the fields and plucking grains of corn or whatever, and the Pharisees, who apparently were like lurking in the cornfields, <laughs> busted, got you. You know, like some scholars have really struggled with that saying, uh, that's not really what they did, but you know, Jesus was a pretty compelling figure and they were out for him, so perhaps they were. But could you imagine being the Pharisee who stationed the cornfields you know, just kind of sitting there in your lawn chair waiting for Jesus and his tribe to come walking through. It's interesting for me to think about. I don't think they had uh, lawn chairs back then, though. 
<clears throat> but this is fencing the Torah, so you have these laws on top of laws to protect that one law. You have to understand this as we think about Sabbath, because for the Pharisees, they were very legalistic in their approach to godliness. And I want to warn you before we go any farther not to throw stones at the Pharisees. We're very good at placing ourselves as the righteous people in the story, but man, the Pharisees, they're my guys. They are the religious PhDs of their time. They are the academics and the nerds and the ones that would pore over scripture and seek for its meaning. And, and they were led astray in, in many different areas. Um, but I think that for a, a lot of us, we have become the self-proclaimed gatekeepers of who's in and who's out and what's right and what's wrong. And in, a, in many ways, we act like the Pharisees acted in this time. So don't be so quick to throw them under the bus unless you're prepared to jump under there with them. Uh, the second thing that we need to understand is something about the Pharisees. Uh, a couple things that we should be aware of. The Pharisees, this is N.T. Wright speaking, the Pharisees were self-chosen and had no authority to make laws or to enforce them. They weren't a legal group. They were a religious group that was uh, specializing in the interpretation of scripture, but they did have considerable influence on ordinary people who respected their expertise in Israel's ancestral laws and traditions. For a very religious community, this was not like um, you know, this family goes to this church and this family goes to that church and this family doesn't go anywhere and this family is Buddhist or Muslim or whatever. This, this is like in first century Israel, this was life in a sense. This was a part of that matrix of um, everyday routine. And the Pharisees were a respected group of people that could help guide the spiritual lives of the folks in the crowd. So when they said things like, that's not proper on the Sabbath, people listened. And now this sets into context Jesus when he shows up and he says crazy things like new wine into new wineskins. The old stuff, the stuff that your respected people keep telling you, yeah, not really. It's more like this. You have heard it said, but I say to you, your sins are forgiven. Like all these different things that Jesus is doing is just putting him on the map as he is completely different. He's teaching with authority and power and the things that he's doing are unfathomable at the time. And to see what that might, might be in, in that moment, I can't shake that phrase, new wine into new wineskins. And how we have desperately wanted to contort Jesus and his gospel message into this safe, old, familiar vessel because we know it and we can sort of keep it at bay. But throughout the text, it's more widespread. Even when you think about Jesus talking about the kingdom, it's like these seeds that you throw and they just, they just start to grow. It's like this small seed that becomes this big bush. It's like it's, it's uncontainable almost, yet we want so desperately to contain it in the old. And Jesus is saying, no. The Pharisees, in addition, um, are described by Philo, who is an ancient uh, Hellenistic Jew 
uh, meaning he's taking some Greek culture and culture of, of Judaism and bringing them together and how he understood the scriptures. He's describing the Pharisees as the strictest guardians of the ancestral institutions, and they were merciless to those who do anything to subvert them. So this is the Pharisee in the ghillie suit in the cornfield waiting to pop out and tell someone that they're wrong in how they're working on the Sabbath. So if we understand Sabbath as this um, way of life, not just something that you follow, but something that's so ingrained in who you are and, and how important it was to not break it, and we put laws on top of laws on top of laws, and we see the Pharisees as this group of people that were trying to police that sort of thing, we can understand these two stories about who Jesus was. The point that we see from all of these stories are the same. Jesus saying the kingdom of God, the thing that you've been waiting for, the thing that's bringing freedom and life and hope, it's here, it's now, it's with me. Stop trying to put it in the old, in the past. Something fresh is happening. The point is redemption is taking place in front of your very eyes. I am healing people. I am forgiving people. I am restoring people. Everything that is demonstrating the kingdom of God invading this place is right before you. Follow me. The point of these stories is new wine into new wineskins. You can't contain the ministry of Jesus in the past. And I would even say that for us today. You can't contain the ministry of Jesus and decide who's in and who's out and who it applies for and who it doesn't apply for and how his love uh, could be limited to a certain group of people and not to other groups of people. We can't enforce that on this gospel that knows no bounds because it's brought us in. Remember I said that at times we paint ourselves in the good light, but Paul says that we were all children of wrath, destined for destruction, but God being rich in mercy. Like there's that turn there where we become a part of this story and don't keep that from others as we think through this story. The point in these two texts in particular is Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath and this is how he, in a sense, defends himself. The things that I'm doing, they're new, they're fresh, they're exciting, they're different. The laws of the past, I'm the Lord of those laws. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath and I'm giving you a picture of what it is actually looking like. So in this first story, um, we can see how this plays out, and at the root of what's going on here, Jesus' argument to the Pharisees, it's not just a legal, I can one-up you based on how I read the text. It's something that's different. It's requiring a decision about who Jesus is and what is the source of his authority, and the same is true of us today. I can stand up here every week and tell you stories about Jesus, but it comes down to what you believe is true about him as a person, about the authority that he continues to have and display right here and right now in your life and the lives of those that you have seen the gospel take a hold and transform them. It's up, in a sense, to us to try to determine who Jesus is and then live accordingly. 
So we have this story about David and Jesus. So when the Pharisees are um, asking, why do your disciples walk through and pick the, the heads of grain? Why is that happening? Jesus tells this old story that doesn't really seem to have much to do with what's going on. It's a story of David uh, taking the bread of presence and allowing his um, mighty men that are with him to eat from it. And we see some, some things that Jesus is pulling together here. In the story of David, we have David as the anointed king by God himself. Yet Saul is still on the throne and Saul is chasing him all throughout the land because Saul is threatened by what is going on. And in this story, we see David trying to escape. David is not yet recognized by all of the people as the king. And at times, Saul sends spies to go see what David is doing and then report back. And we see in this story an analogy of that where Jesus himself is the anointed king who is not yet recognized by everyone. He has his followers and his people, but not everyone is quite on board. And we also see how the Pharisees are sneaking around in cornfields to try to trap him and see what's going on. And there's a parallel that Jesus is using where he's saying, you remember David? He was pretty important. Not better than that guy like Jesus becoming the true king of God's people. That language that he uses, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath, has all sorts of Old Testament resonances where some people in the audience, would have, their ears would have perked up and said, is he saying what I think he's saying? Is he claiming to be Messiah? Is he claiming to be the one who will show up and, and right the ship? And indeed, he was. In the second story, there's something that, that pops out to me that, that I just want to focus on here, and then we'll be done. It says that as Jesus is ministering to this guy with a withered hand, which some people would think that's just a, like a, a paralyzed sort of hand that's immobile, and Jesus wanting to restore that on the Sabbath, um, says that he looks around at them in anger, I believe this is the only time in Mark where this term is, is associated to Jesus, where he's moved emotionally in such a way where, I don't know, without trying to psychoanalyze the text, it just seems as though he's at pains because the people just don't get it. Miracle on top of miracle on top of miracle and teaching on top of teaching on top of teaching about forgiveness and hope and restoration. And these guys are trying to trap him and he's saying, you don't see what's right in front of you. It's new wine into new wineskins. It's completely different. It's completely compelling. It's completely exciting. Join me, follow me. But they won't. And he looks at them with anger and he's deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Same kind of term that was used for Old Testament Israel. They're just stubborn and they're recalcitrant and they're unwilling to follow God with everything that they have. And Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand. So both of these stories, as we dip into the context and we see Sabbath and we see Pharisees and we see Jesus yet again continuing in this, this theme of it's new and it's happening, follow me. It leads to this question of what about us? 
And I've wrestled with this one all week because this is a pretty, a pretty contextually set passage. But I think that if we're honest with ourselves tonight, that the same sorts of questions are for us to answer. Who are we in these stories? Are we the Pharisees that go around that determine who's in and who's out? Are we the Pharisees that police people's interpretations of the Bible in a way that takes away from the heart of what God is actually doing? I definitely don't wanna give the impression that it's unimportant to um, read the Bible well. Um, but I think that at times we move into setting up laws on top of laws on top of laws on top of laws to protect the one thing and by the end of it, we're so far away from the heart of what God wants that we're no better than the Pharisees in a ghillie suit, in a cornfield, waiting for somebody to fall so that we can say, ha! Have we become so inundated with church that we have forgotten the sweetness of forgiveness and grace and mercy from a God who continues to invite us into this beautiful story? Have we become so complacent that we no longer share the goodness of who Christ is as the one who offers freedom and hope and life to those who are in bondage of legalism and shame and guilt. As we sit here tonight, perhaps we still haven't even answered the question of who is this guy? What is he doing? Not only what is he doing in these really old stories, but what might he be doing right here and right now? I remember back in the day when I was where you are hearing people like me say things, and at certain moments there would be that, pastors always call it, the tug on the heartstrings. And it sounds really weird and strange, but like for some of you there might be this first time moment of whatever this guy is offering, not only do I want it, I need it. And without it, I'm nothing. The more stories of Jesus that we read together, the more that we are face to face with our own decisions of how it is that we are choosing to live. And I would submit to you, the best way that we can choose to live is in submission to this God who is compelling and beautiful and loving and forgiving. I hope that tonight, regardless of what it is that you have brought to this table, that you would begin to see Jesus as one who is powerful not just to do crazy miracles of healing and not just to allow his disciples to do things that were kind of edgy at the time, but to allow you in to this story of life that doesn't begin when you die, but it begins right here and right now through faith in Jesus Christ.